Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 to 12. And you can find that on page 986 of the Red Pew Bibles and page 1532 of the Large Pink Bibles. When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went into the region of Judea to the other side of the Jordan. Large crowds followed him and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to him to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If this is a situation between a husband and a wife, is it better not to marry? Jesus replied, Not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this, should accept it. Second reading comes from 1 Corinthians 7, verse 17 through to 35. 1 Corinthians 7. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God has called them. This is the rule I lay down in all the churches. Was a man already circumcised when he was called? He should not become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. Uh, For the one who is Uh, who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord, is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, when the one who was free when called is Christ's slave, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Now about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time 
is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. Thanks, Rob. If you'd leave your Bibles open there, I encourage you to do that, to follow along. And again, we'll pray for the help of the Holy Spirit. Father, as we continue reflecting on relationships and uh, our need for them, We thank you for your love for us that never changes and we pray that your spirit would illuminate your word to us, that it might speak to us in our different circumstances uh, and especially as we address this topic of singleness tonight. We pray it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Ed Shaw wrote an article at the Gospel Coalition website entitled, How Can You Live Without Sex? He said our society made that increasingly impossible, you know, to enjoy a human life without sex. Uh, For example, he pointed to the 40-year-old virgin movie starring Steve Carell, uh, the man's desperate struggles to solve this problem of still no sex at age 40. Sounds so unbelievable to Hollywood, so they milk it as comical. On the other hand, when was the last time you saw a movie featuring a contented bachelor or spinster? We don't even use those words anymore. Yeah, it's not the full story. I read in The Independent that nearly half Japanese people entering their 30s are virgins and a quarter of 50-year-old men there remain unmarried. They say relationships are confusing. The opposite sex can be scary. Actually, I don't think Japanese people are the only ones. Uh, The online world can be easier, sadly including porn, And other factors were taking career opportunities, uh, finances, uh, other bigger interests. A growing number of young adults abstain from sex and avoid romantic relationships. Indeed, Japan is facing a significant population decline. In our world, our world, the reasons for marriage major on romance and companionship. Sex is already available principle now. In earlier times, not in the church but just in general thinking, in earlier times it was was having children, it was gaining security especially for women and it was providing social status that were more dominant motivations. Well what about Christians? Christians generally prize marriage. Marriage appears on page two of the Bible in Genesis 2, it kind of arrives with woman, a solution to the problem of man's aloneness. But plenty of single Christians have not found it easy to find the suitable believer they could make those vows to. 
and yet believing that sex belongs only in marriage doesn't make a single person any less of a sexual being. Learning to live without that physical intimacy can be a big struggle. For others, it's felt more in the absence of a lifetime companion. And it's made worse when some friends can't help giving the impression they view the single person as in transition, somehow unfulfilled or incomplete. And then what what do you do with the person who tries to pair you up with someone suitable? Part of you may want to thank them at times. And another part wishes they'd butt out and just take you as you are. You know, there's some advantages in singleness. 1 Corinthians 7 agrees and helps us think well about singleness as Christians. Paul's general principle is to encourage contentment. Contentment with your current situation, whether it's single, married, single again. Uh, The general principle is expressed in verse 17. Nevertheless, each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to them, just as God God has called them. The same call for contentment concludes the section as well, verse 24. Brothers and sisters, each person as responsible to God should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. Somewhat surprisingly to prove his point, Paul takes a detour talks about circumcision and slavery, that's race and class. His first point is to establish your true vocation. Middle class people often use the word vocation to speak of your occupation in a way that implies that it's more than just a job. Being a doctor or a teacher or a designer of some kind, whether it's engineering or artistic. Can you do artistic engineering? But it's a vocation, it's a calling. And calling language is used repeatedly here. Verse 17, uh, twice in verse 18, again in verse 20 at the end, 21, 22, uh, 24. All through this section, being called refers not to your job, but to becoming a Christian. God calls you to become a Christian. Chapter 1, verse 8 of the book, Paul writes that God, quote, called you into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Chapter 1, verse 26 says, not many of the Corinthians were wise or influential or noble-born by human standards when they were called. That is, when they trusted the powerful word of the cross for redemption. There is no greatest status or power than in this calling to fellowship with Jesus. Now back here in chapter 7 verse 17, he's saying God called you as you were. So you don't need to improve your situation to somehow please him more. And he spells it out, verse 18, was a man already circumcised when he was called? He shouldn't become uncircumcised. Was a man uncircumcised when he was called? He should not be circumcised. Now circumcision was the symbol given to Abraham that ever since marked a Jewish man as belonging to God. If a man wanted to convert, he needed to be circumcised, painful though that was for a grown man. Uh, Some Jewish men, on the other hand, wanted to fit in with cosmopolitan Roman society, socially mobile upwards, uh, where circumcision was ridiculed and 
men bathed naked in public baths. I think it is a bit like they do in Japan and some other cultures. And so any bloke could see if you were circumcised. So apparently there was an operation uh, that could hide your circumcision. Well, verse 19 then is an amazing sentence for Paul to write. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. But circumcision was God's Old Testament command. No, but Christ has fulfilled it. We are not under law, but grace. In Galatians 5 and verse 6, Paul again says circumcision doesn't matter, only faith expressed in love. Uh, In chapter 9 here in verse 21, Paul says, yes, he's under Christ's law, It's Christ's rule, in other words, that matters now. To become a Christian, you just need to put your faith and keep your faith or trust in Jesus. It's clear here that neither race nor religious background can stop you being saved and no change in your religious practice or your spirituality can improve your status with God. Here's the conclusion, verse 20. Each person should remain in the situation they were in when God called them. But but, but our society prizes autonomy, freedom. If the gospel brings freedom, well, what about our personal choices? Paul adds that true freedom is found in contentment with your circumstances. Actually, contentment with Christ in your circumstances. Uh, He uses the despised example of slavery, verse 21. Are you a slave when you are called? Don't let it trouble you. Oh, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who is a slave when called to faith is in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. Similarly, the one who is free when called is Christ's slave. Slaves could sometimes be offered their release by a kind master or even save up to buy their freedom, pay off their redemption price. Paul says, if you can get free, go for it. In principle, you can see this in verse 23, Paul doesn't see slavery as a good thing. Uh, You are bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. It's not so good. These Christian teachings opened the way in more democratic times for the abolition of slavery. Getting free of slavery was not always possible. And Paul says here, don't let it worry you. Even though treatment of slaves ranged from very good to very bad. In fact, he says, uh, slavery was easily exploited. So it matters less that you're a slave than whose slave you were, who your master was. Verse 23 said, The Christian has been bought by Christ, purchased at the cost of his blood, shed on the cross for your redemption. So we don't belong to ourselves. The real improvement in status for a Christian slave is not from slavery into some kind of self-fulfilling freedom, but placement with a new and totally good master. Jesus Christ. In fact, of course, free men were really slaves of sin. But now, as freed slaves of Christ, 
Well, that far outranks the old status, you know, Roman citizen or an Aussie for that matter. Are you getting it? Why, why all this time? Aren't we talking about singleness? Many feel trapped. Dare we say enslaved by their marriage or by their singleness. And you need to know your ability to serve and honour God is not determined by your relationship status. Verse 17 says God has assigned your circumstances to you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He counts the number of hairs on your head. He knows what's best for you. And you don't somehow need to change your status to serve God. Now, desire or difficulty may make a change of relationship attractive. And if you can do it lawfully, that's fine. But first learn contentment in your circumstances. Neither serving God's call nor enjoying Christian freedom in the end depend on graduating to the right situation. And I say this, marriage will certainly not solve all your problems as a single person. So then, if you're single, how do you weigh marriage up? Well, Paul's argument is actually that singleness may be better. Uh, we already heard him say this back in verse 8. Uh, verse, uh, uh, yeah, verse 8, to the unmarried and widows I say it's good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But he expresses it as a preference. He states repeatedly it's okay to marry. It's a matter of wisdom for your personal situation and temperament. His comparison of marriage and singleness is not bad versus good that both are legitimate and can be godly options. But one thing the Bible never says, as far as I can see, is that marriage is better and singleness is, well, you know, just okay. It never says that. But it's not marriage good versus singleness best either. Because best would imply you oughtn't to settle for less. Now, through this chapter, it's good versus better. Just relative. Marriage is good. But here are some reasons why singleness may be better. His first reason for recommending singleness is because of a crisis. Verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one by who the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it's good for a man to remain as he is. Are you pledged to a woman? Do not seek to be released. Are you free from such a commitment? Don't look for a wife. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she's not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life and I want to spare you this. Uh, The present crisis language, verse 26, seems to refer uh, to something pinching you now, literally, causing troubles. Most scholars think Paul's talking about something like famine. In Acts 11, verse 28, the prophet Agabus predicted a severe famine for the entire Roman world. And the narrator says it happened during the reign of Claudius, that's AD 41 to 54. 
and historical records confirm a grain commissioner appointed in Corinth around the time Paul was writing to them. That that appointment only happened in times of food shortage. A crisis is hard for anyone. But it's harder if you have a family. You have more mouths to feed. Uh, If the mother dies, well, now you've got to manage the kids alone while still earning an income. Now, the husband dies, well, you're destitute. Such grief always stalks marriage. Back then, life expectancy was much shorter. For women, I was astonished to read only 20 or 30 years in that period. Uh, Primitive contraception was unreliable and dangerous. One-fifth of pregnancies were fatal for the mother. And in a crisis like famine, well, that was even more likely to produce such heartache for the married. Today in Australia, life expectancy is much longer. Health system, social welfare net, much better. You could imagine, however, people applying Paul's wisdom, say back during World War I or II, delaying marriage until the war is over. Why, why risk giving your heart to someone who's probably going to die in the war? And worse still, if he left you holding a baby. Today, conversion and preaching is illegal in some mission fields. And I can imagine a missionary wanting to go there to serve might decide to go as a single person. Because if you're married, the pressure's going to be double, isn't it? If, if one of you is arrested and, and jailed, and singleness means less stress about others in times of crisis. Second reason singleness may be better is because of the end, verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Uh, just, uh, uh, just first part of 29, that'll do. Our time is short. It's shortened. It's limited. Uh, Paul seems to be thinking of the time of Christ's return. New Testament teaches Jesus will return to judge the world and to take his people home. Since you believers know where our time is headed, let the future dictate how you live now. Let it influence what you do in your present temporary circumstances. The application, verse 29 again, from now on those who have wives should live as if they do not, those who mourn as if they did not, those who are happy as if they were not, those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep, those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Now he's clearly not predicting just how short time was. For example, he, he saw he, there was still time to get married, didn't he? Uh, but our eternal future with Christ relativizes temporary social needs. It's not, not that you should quit your marriage. Uh, last week he saw the general principle, Christians should stay committed to their marriage. Uh, verse 30 could sound like you've got to pretend sorrow and joy don't exist in your marriage. Now he's using a form of hyperbole, exaggeration to say that neither happiness nor sadness should be decisive in your marriage, nor, we would add, in your singleness. 
not with Christ. You can tell it's hyperbole from the, the latter example, the end of verse 30, of course you've still got to buy stuff, don't you? Just don't think you're the ultimate owner. Uh, you see the view for the pew today, I think uh, the chin girls were told, the doll isn't yours, Rachel, or yours, Naomi, the doll belongs to God. Kind of the point. Verse 31 says, we use the things of this world, just don't get engrossed in them. This is a reminder likewise that your marriage is temporary. You'll be parted by death. Martin Luther says to behave as guests on earth. Since you're only here a short time, don't sink too deeply into its love and desire or its boredom and suffering. You've still got to do business. Just don't be diverted from doing ultimate business with God. Jesus once gave a parable, didn't he, of those who rejected the invitation to the great end time feast with God and their excuses. One said, I cannot come. I've just bought some nice new oxen for the farm. I've got to try them out. Another said, I cannot come. I've just got married. I'm busy. Too busy for King Jesus. That is worldliness. That is short-sightedness. In our better moments, we we see it when we do it with our possessions, don't we? But Christians must not make their marriage or their desire for marriage into an idol more important than Christ. And if you're single, you will at least not have the temptation of putting a marriage partner now before God. There's one last reason Paul thinks singleness may be better than marriage and it's related, it's because of concerns, because of worries. Verse 32, I'd like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. This word used here for concern is sometimes translated as anxious. But concern is a good choice here. Because Paul's not saying concern's always wrong. It's not wrong to be concerned for your husband or wife. In fact, if you're married, you should care for your spouse's needs and feelings. If you get married, you just can't please yourself. Now, of course, he knows, he agrees, a married person can serve the Lord, but he's saying there are, there are limits, greater limits or distractions. It's not that singleness is any more a cure for selfishness than marriage. A single person still has to decide whether they're just going to please themselves or whether they'll seek to please God. That's, that's basic repentance for us all. But Paul's point is that if you want to please God, which he assumes should be the normal... See how he assumes that it should be the normal aim of all Christians? Well, then a single person's aim or concern is not going to be divided in the same way that a marriage person naturally and rightly has. Because you're passing out time and energy and attention in two different directions. Paul really dignifies the status of people who use their singleness to serve the Lord. Once again, in verse 35, he closes out the section with a reminder, it's not a command, 
It's not a restriction. It's an honest opinion that singleness can be good for you. Frees you from real concerns and distractions and opens wonderful flexibility and freedom for living well as a Christian disciple. I think of John Stott, John Chapman, two of the great servants of the gospel in modern times. Uh, bachelors who became great Bible teachers and church leaders and book authors, when their gifts were recognised as a blessing that the wider church needed to hear more of, they had the freedom to travel widely and more often than most married pastors ever could. And they were an uncle and a godfather and a friend to so many, again, vastly more, I think, than most married men can manage. And I think of less famous people, people right here like, Sheila Stockdale, Pauline Skellen at St Michael's. One a nurse and later a pastoral care worker here. The other taught generations of students at Smiths Hill High, still often stopped with affection by former students in the street. Some of us who love them now have only known them really in their retirement. They still fit so much service of Christ and his people and the wider community into their lives. They've had rich relationships. But what a blessing their devotion to the Lord has been undistracted by marriage. I also know a man, a decided lifelong bachelor, all his life, since he struggled with same-sex attraction. I'm sure there's some loneliness in staying celibate and faithful to Christ. But he's worked on his friendships and he's been effective as a Christian helping lead a Bible study group and so much extra time volunteering, often just quietly behind the scenes. It's not to say remaining single and celibate, faithful, chaste is easy. Couples and families often need to do much better at including single people in their activities just as a matter of course and not by making a special point of it, a special fuss of it. It can be very lonely for singles and for the divorced and widows, especially if their being alone has now been for a long time. The loss of intimacy can hit so hard. Uh, one, I'm quoting from one woman. The pain has blessed me by forcing me to be all in with God, banking on him for my joy. Now, God is a God of pleasure. He's not calling us to hunger because he wants us to be miserable. He's calling us to hunger because he wants us to experience the greatest pleasure available to man, himself. Nothing makes God look as beautiful as when we who have tasted his goodness would use our lives to testify that we will forego any momentary joy in order to taste more of him. I'm indebted for what I say in conclusion to Ed Shaw. I'm largely paraphrasing these next little bit. Our own sorry generation equates the absence of sexual gratification with the absence of full personhood or the deprivation of joy. But it is hard to see how scripture could be any more positive about the celibate life. The gospel says Jesus Christ was single and it holds him up as history's only perfect human being. 
in Jesus you see life to the full and his was a human life without sex. Churches must never forget that. And tonight we've also been reminded of Paul's example and teaching. Could he have made his missionary journeys or mentored so many young church leaders if he had a wife and kids back home to care for? We should promote the very real benefits of the single life that he teaches in 1 Corinthians 7 in our churches today. We're familiar, aren't we, friends, with the idea that the marital union is a symbol of Christ's love for the church. Well, that's why there are no marriages in heaven because we'll have the reality there. But Sam Albury writes, by foregoing marriage now, singleness is a way of both anticipating this reality and testifying to its goodness. It's a way of saying this future reality is so certain that we can live according to it now. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. I'll say it again. If marriage shows us the shape of the gospel, singleness shows us its sufficiency. It's a way of declaring to a world obsessed with sexual and romantic intimacy that these things are not ultimate and that in Christ we possess what is.